it's a missing chapter in nutrition up to this point because it's been a really tricky thing to study. A lot of these bugs you can't grow. And it's only been with the advent of sequencing technologies that we can begin to know who's there and what they're doing. And I think that has been the unlock to then circle back to um, nutrition and what it is that we've missed, like literally missed, taken out through processing uh, in our nutrition because we focus so much on growing our own cells, but we haven't thought about how do we grow our microbial partners. Some have called it the Tamaguchi of, of our guts, or some have likened it to an entirely lost or forgotten organ. Welcome to FemPower Health, Georgie here. I've had the pleasure of interviewing over 100 guests on the FemPower Health podcast, and I've been noticing an interesting theme when it comes to our health. On the one hand, it seems that the microbiome plays an even more critical role than many of us thought. And while we tend to talk a lot about probiotics, et cetera, what we're realizing is what we eat, the stress levels, et cetera, all have an impact on our microbiome and our overall health. On the other hand, we're seeing so many one-liners, so to speak, on social media, where there seems to be a lot of attachment to the specific diet that each one of us goes on, whether it's being a vegan or keto or intermittent fasting. So today I bring to you Dr. Christopher Damon. He is a former functional food and microbiome lead with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and he is a board certified gastroenterologist at the Digestive Health Center at UW Medical Center. So we talk about the gut microbiome and nutrition and its role in our overall health. Enjoy. So we are here to talk about gut health and nutrition. And I think this is such an important conversation to have. There's a lot of questions um, that really need to be addressed from a fact basis. Because I feel like with nutrition, there's all these headlines and strong opinions about how to be healthy. And if you're if you're not on keto, I'm not talking to you. Or if you're not a vegetarian, you don't understand. It's and I'm not saying everyone um, who eats in the different ways has those opinions, but there definitely is the war and. Yeah, there's 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 some really entrenched perspectives for sure. Um, I, I call them diatribes uh, and they all launch into their diatribes. I think that's a reflection of people's own personal journeys with nutrition and they find a solution that works for them. And one size is not it's not one size fits all uh, in the nutrition world. There truly is personalization and there truly are some medical conditions where things like carbohydrates can be really tough on the gut. And so uh, folks that go in the direction of keto and very low carbohydrate, uh, it, it could be that fueling uh, that perspective. And, and, you know, it's founded in, in uh, good research. So I, I tend to be quite sympathetic when it comes to people's perspectives because they're long, hard, arduous journeys. And if they found something that works for them, I tend to be, you know, quite supportive of that. Now, that said, there are general perspectives at the level of public health and whole populations uh, that inform which might be the healthiest diets uh, for yes. uh, people in general, not specific people with specific conditions. So, so do give your introduction because I think it's a, an important one um, and very relevant one to give, and then we can continue um, diving into this. Yep, absolutely. So 
I, I'm a GI physician, but I've spent most of my career in translational research at the interface of clinical medicine and what's sort of up and coming in terms of new therapies. And my specific interest has been in the gut microbiome, um, probably before it even had that name. Um, I remember a lecture back in medical school um, um, and a book by Paul Ewald was referenced and Paul's an evolutionary biologist and he basically said, yeah, all disease is probably microbes. Um, and lo and behold, we then discovered how important the microbiome is. So um, I followed that wave all throughout um, medical school and internship residency and then GI fellowship um, and then received a fateful email from the Gates Foundation about seven years ago. Um, asking if I knew folks in the microbiome field because uh, they were interested in applying those perspectives to undernutrition, malnutrition, preterm birth. And that turned into uh, five years working at the foundation, uh, leading their gut health and microbiome efforts, um, focusing on women and children, and uh, transitioned then to vaginal uh, microbiome as well. Um, and so some uh, fascinating parallels there. Uh, but then I sort of became disillusioned uh, because I recognized that undernutrition was being replaced with overnutrition. There's this double burden uh, of, of disease uh, where folks um, you know, have obesity and diabetes as prevalent uh, as uh, stunting and wasting um, and realize that this is a system that needs to and can be fixed right here at home as well and, and so focused uh, my efforts about two years ago on a, a problem closer to home, at least it be replicated across uh, uh, the whole world. Uh, so that's, that's me. That's my passion. You know, you were starting to say that, you know, you're so um, empathetic and sympathetic to the people who are really attached to the diets that um, they are now using because they've been on a long journey. And I completely agree, understand, because I had a four-year fertility journey, totally did not understand many, many things about health, thought I did. I work in healthcare. My, my whole career, I've been in it. And, um, you know, it's taken me a really, really long time to figure out what works for me. And there were moments where I was like, probably a little cultish about food and other things. Um, and I now understand it is customized to the individual. And then I had a really interesting conversation with a close friend of mine who is a clinician. And we had this whole debate about how when you create standards, you still have to do it for the overall population. And then people go through mm -hmm. their journeys to find what works for them because there's still mm -hmm. elements of customization. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time it really hit me because when you're on the ground, that person who's going through this journey, it's like so frustrating that your clinician couldn't help you. And then like the whole medical system is terrible, right? If people get to that point. Um, but hearing it from her and also now from you, it's there's a reason why it's being done the way it is. It may not, you know, hopefully technology will allow us to get to customization more quickly. <laughs> but yeah, so talk to us more about how we do need to make it systemic to a point and then people can figure out their, their own journeys. Yeah. Within any population, there is an average uh, individual, a mean, um, and within populations that are more homogeneous, um, there's less 
variation from that mean. So the populations that we were working on in sub-Saharan Africa uh, and South Asia, um, the one size fits all approach might work a little bit better uh, because um, the diets that they're on, the culture uh, that they exist within tends to be more standard. Now, in a place like the United States where there's incredible diversity at a genetic level, at a microbiome level, at a cultural level, one size fits all can be a little bit trickier. Uh, and there still is that average approach that's really important uh, from a public health uh, standpoint um, and the general recommendations that are made. And you know, one of those standard um, recommendations, I think Michael Pollan has said well, um, and is captured within the Mediterranean diet. And it's essentially uh, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Um, you know, you can make dietary advice as complicated or as simple as you want to, uh, but ultimately, you know, it can come back to very simple aphorisms like that. Um, but like I said, there are, you know, people that have medical conditions, um, you know, for example, some types of Crohn's disease, um, folks that follow a very low carbohydrate diet or a specific carbohydrate diet, there's evidence suggests that it actually helps prevent flares uh, in their active disease. And it's probably because uh, there are certain microbes there that are bad actors uh, in their particular guts, or they might have immune systems that are just uh, potentiated to respond to the natural bacteria there, and they grow and they see certain carbohydrates. So since you've been so close to um, your interest in microbiome, tell us why it is so important and what we need to understand with how food relates to it. Because, you know, again, I feel like with this fast paced society we live in and clickbait with media, trying to just get people to click on articles, these crazy headlines are created for those clicks. And, you know, the fast paced world we live in with social media, et cetera, it's just this headline basis world we live in. Can you talk to us about why a balanced microbiome like really is so critical? Um, put in simple terms, the gut is the gateway to health. Like literally all of the nutrients that we consume come in through the gut. Um, so it stands to reason that it probably is impacting uh, the rest of the body and health systems in a profound way if it's um, not working right. And uh, in terms of uh, the microbes in our gut, they're not just innocent bystanders. They're actually you know, partners in health. Um, they take the components of the food that we can't digest, like fiber, but also polyphenols. Um, they transform certain fats and, and certain things that are present in fermented foods. And they uh, transform them into health signals uh, that are important for our body, maybe as important as the standard nutrients that we think about, like macro micronutrients, the proteins, the fats, the carbohydrates, vitamins and minerals that we get in our diet. Um, and I think the next you know, 50 to 100 years uh, in nutrition will be focused on those bioactives um, that help promote a healthy microbiome and then the factors that the microbiome uh, produce for, for our health. It's a missing chapter in nutrition up to this point because it's been a really tricky thing to study. A lot of these bugs you can't grow. And it's only been with the advent of sequencing technologies that we can begin to know who's there and what they're doing. 
And I think that has been the unlock to then circle back to um, nutrition and what it is that we've missed, like literally missed, taken out through processing uh, in our nutrition. Because we focus so much on growing our own cells, but we haven't thought about how do we grow our microbial partners. Some have called it the Tamaguchi of, of our guts, or some have likened it to an entirely lost or forgotten organ um, system, just like our cardiovascular system. How, how do we maintain that health? And I think you're right. When we, when we understand better um, how to grow a healthy microbiome, and I don't think it's really that complicated, um, then the overall health implications are huge. It's, it truly is connected to so many systems uh, in our body and so much dysfunction that we see in modern day, whether it be metabolic disease or inflammatory disease or neurological disease. Uh, those connections are there and we're learning more and more that it's not just correlation, but causation. Are there any specific things that um, you can cite? Like you're, you did allude to processed. You can kind of distill it down to salt, sugar, fat. Yes. As Michael uh, Moss articulates uh, in his book um, with the same name, maybe additives too. I think, where we might be missing the mark though, is it's, those aren't really bad things apart from some of the synthetic additives, salt, sugar, and fat aren't bad. It's just, we get way too much of them. Processing concentrates them and puts them in certain combinations that make them very, very, um, rewarding, maybe even addictive. Um, there's some recent research that's actually looked at brain activity when you consume foods that have certain combinations of salt and sugar or fat. But what we've missed is uh, what's been taken out. The, the processing doesn't just concentrate certain things, uh, but it also takes certain things out. And I call those the four Fs, fiber, uh, phenols, ferments, and good fats. One's a phonetic F, pH. But yeah, those are categorically some of the things that are probably more important uh, that have been taken out. Um, that are present in whole foods and that we can add back to our diet and eating whole foods and possibly in, in supplementing our diet with these things as well. Are there mistakes that people are making with their diet or anything else you wanted to allude uh, to share for mm -hmm. that healthy microbiome? I suppose the biggest mistake is um, eating too much processed food. Okay. Um, and we've known for, for decades now that it, whole foods are, are healthy. They promote health. Um, there's lots of interventional studies uh, with, you know, Mediterranean diet. Um, the, the rub, though, is we know how to eat healthy, but as a society, we haven't. Uh, and it stems from the difficulty around behavior change. And we have really busy lifestyles, the foods that you know, are present in fast food uh, chains and um, in the center aisles of supermarkets, you know, the canned foods and the frozen foods are just easy and they're tasty. You know, we, we have palates that have grown accustomed to them. So how do you short circuit that systemic issue of busy lives needing to reach for simple foods that are quick and easy and cheap, relatively speaking? I think if we can solve that problem, then 
we can make some real headway on the metabolic uh, disease, um, neurological and uh, inflammatory disease uh, issues that we're seeing. And that's, it's not an easy problem to solve because there's, you know, big economic interests at play here too, uh, with industry that, you know, is a tide that's rising against, um, some ways the health of, of the nation. But if we, if we could find a way to align those incentives with individuals incentives and in health, I think that would be a huge win-win. Um, and that's where I become a pragmatist and I think, okay, well, yes, we should keep finding ways to emphasize the importance of whole foods and find ways to get those into our diet because there's really no substitute for that. There never will be. And there are new ways. There's, you know, companies that have uh, created smartphone apps uh, for tracking the foods that you eat and um, giving you alternative suggestions if you scan, you know, a UPC code and things like that. And I think those will be really helpful. But I think another part of the solution is, you know, pragmatically, how can we make the processed foods that are out there and probably always will be out there better and healthier and and put some of these things that have been taken out back in and um, maybe bring down some of the things that are too high, like sugar, salt, and fat, and, and find a balance that actually gets closer to what food is meant to be in the first place and is present in minimally processed or whole foods. And that's, there's many things that need to happen at once, but those are, I think, two of the key levers that can make a difference. It's true. The reality is something we need to take into account, whether we're busy or we live in a place where you have to drive 20 miles to find healthy food. So what are the, in the meantime, if we can't get to ideal, what are the things that people can realistically focus on? There are alternatives to those less healthy um, versions of food. So for example, there's companies that are making better for you sodas that don't have tons of sugar, don't have uh, sugar substitutes, and are actually sweetened with natural fibers. and might even venture to say like possibly a little bit healthy for you. The trick with, with a lot of these substitutes is they don't taste just like you know, the things that people are used to. And so it still does require a little bit of shift in uh, flavor preference, palate preference. Um, and that can be a barrier for a lot of people. They like their Mountain Dew. They've always liked their Mountain Dew and they're continuing. They will, they will continue to drink their Mountain Dew regardless of public health messaging um, and insight of how this is impacting their health and body. But education is a big part of it and education around um why these alternatives are healthier um, and how it's not just going to impact things like, you know, your weight and blood pressure and blood sugar, but as a very recent New York times article highlights, it will impact uh, your mood, your outlook on life, the things that, you know, we tend to care more about than just numbers. So think if we can make those connections for people and, and show how these changes will improve their quality of life, that could be um, really incentivizing. There's a lot of companies, like I said, that are producing these um, alternate, healthier for you processed foods. And I think that will go a long way. I think some of these technologies too, that help the consumer decide what's healthy and what's not and show them um, in real time what alternatives might be, will also be super powerful. And um, I alluded to these, these apps um, and there's, there's also food grading systems uh, so we've all had the experience of going cross-eyed, staring at food facts labels 
Um, and even those of us that are trained in nutrition, uh, as our eyesight goes, or as our patience is not there, you know, kids that are tired and want to get home, clinging to you, it's not always very practical to spend time and do that. And I've gotten very passionate about how we can make that simpler and, and easy with just an app uh, where you scan the UPC code and it gives you a one to 100 uh, rating. Yeah. And then that can help you decide, well, this is a healthy cereal. It might even say, well, this is another cereal that's very similar, but healthier. Um, and you can even personalize it and say, well, I'm keto or I'm avoiding FODMAPs um, or, you know, I have an allergy to this. So it'll, it'll be personalized to your uh, specific preferences and, and, and health background. Is it available yet? So there is a, a very early beta version that I've been testing and we are on the verge of launching something uh, for more general consumption. Okay. But yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about it. I think the best projects always stem from where your own needs are. Right. <laughs> I mean, my wife and I have our hands full with three kids, um, 11, uh, eight and six. So grocery store shopping is tricky. And I'm always whispering over my wife's shoulder, like, oh, we should get this instead of that, because this is what I live, eat and breathe, literally nutrition. But now that she has this beta app, it's like me whispering over her shoulder all the time. She nice. can just do that quick scan and and then that way, if you like annoyed her that day, she can't like get mad at you and like be like, stop annoying me and telling me what to do because it's an app. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say this because earlier you were mentioning something and I was thinking back to college and I've, I went to the, the nutritionist for whatever reason, biggest takeaway, and I still remember it is no more canned vegetables, only frozen. If you're not going to get fresh, I have mm-hmm. not had a canned vegetable since mm-hmm. the only thing canned are the tomatoes when I um, need to make some sort of a chili or something. I agree. Uh, frozen vegetables are so much tastier. And you know what? It's it's crazy, but I've I've heard things like they might even be a little bit healthier than the unfrozen versions. I don't know if I entirely believe that, but you could think of it as you harvest something and you essentially freeze it. So all of that nutrients there is, is frozen. It's, it's preserved. Um, whereas something that you harvest and then transport refrigerated, it starts deteriorating. That's true. So there might, there might be something to that. I've also heard that around, uh, fish, you know, it's maybe better to have frozen fish than fish that is never frozen is transported over long distances. Certainly if you like catch something, uh, and fry that up right away, that's probably much better. Or if you have your own garden, that's going to be much better. Um, I don't know how much truth there is to that, but I, I thought it was kind of an intriguing idea. When it comes to canned vegetables, though, there is one category uh, of vegetables, I guess you can call them vegetables, that I think canned still is good, and that would be beans and low-sodium versions of beans. Not not the green beans, but kidney beans and black beans. Like Beans are such a, a powerhouse when it comes to nutrition. They're filled with good fibers. They're high in protein. And when people ask me, what are, what are the few things that I can do to improve my health? I usually say, well, eat more beans um, and eat oatmeal for breakfast. 
<laughs> now, but beans can make people gassy. So is this like a genetic thing? Is it you should rinse them? Is it take charcoal with it? Like, what's the key? Because there may be people who are like, sorry, the gas is too much. Gas is too much. The Our guts are just generally not all that accustomed to fiber. Only 5% of people get enough, if you can believe it. Generally, people get about 15 grams or less, and we should be having 30 grams. What makes the gases, the microbes in our gut, and folks that have imbalances in their gut microbiome, that gas will be more. Because the gas in a a balanced uh, microbial ecosystem will be consumed by secondary degraders. Um, So you you have the, the first guys that are eating the primary fiber, and then what they produce is being consumed by other members, the secondary degraders. Uh, That said, if we go low and go slow, that's the mantra in reintroducing fibers into our diet, whether it's, you know, broccoli, uh, which is another big culprit or cruciferous vegetables in general, the relatives of broccoli or beans. If you go low and go slow, that gives your gut microbiome a chance to re-equilibrate. And um, you, you might still experience some winds, but it may not be as bad. Uh, and your gut will eventually adapt uh, to the higher amounts. You just don't want to overdo it at the beginning. Your, your friends and family will thank you for going low and slow. And I think <laughs> your gut will too. So interesting. One of the um, questions that we were going back and forth about since we're on the fiber topic is how are fibers different in supporting the microbiome? So what else do we need to discuss there? There's lots of different types of fibers and it's easy to use broad brushstrokes and say, get more fiber, get 30 grams at least, uh, plus or minus, depending on how active you are uh, in your age, um, whether you're male or female. Um, But it's it's more complicated than that. There, there's um, soluble fiber, insoluble fiber. There's fibers that tend um, to be better at growing your microbiome uh, and others that are less prebiotic. There's all these nuances and we keep getting pitched the one-liner, eat more fiber. Like what the heck does that mean? So and I'll say one more thing and then I'll give some specifics. Yes. And one of the, the fibers <clears throat> that tends to be more difficult on people's guts are the high FODMAP fibers. And these are fibers that are more readily fermented and fermented in the upper gut, especially in people that have imbalances in the microbes in the upper gut, whether it's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or even just IBS, which arguably affects as many as one in three people in the US. These include things like inulin, chicory root, garlic powder, onion powder, garlic and onion in general. Um, There's inulin in wheat. And if you look at the label of processed foods, you'll see a lot of these things there. Inulin, chicory root, garlic powder, onion powder. And you might think, oh, garlic, onion, that's innocuous. That's no issue. Well, folks that suffer from IBS or SIBO, these can... Um, cause a lot of issues in the gut because of the imbalance in the microbes that uh, exist to begin with. So these high FODMAP fibers um, can be real culprits for people with their GI symptoms, whether it's diarrhea or looser stools or bloating. And talking with a professional um, that can counsel you on how to avoid these high FODMAP fibers can be incredibly insightful and helpful uh, for GI symptoms. 
there are also low FODMAP fibers. And so just as folks uh, can avoid these um, high FODMAP foods uh, and often processed foods that have these high FODMAP fibers, they should at the same time increase low FODMAP fibers. And that's often not um, part of the counseling or advice that's uh, received when you might go to um, a healthcare professional and how to deal with your GI symptoms. Because um, it's not just about avoiding, it's about bringing back the good. That's kind of a general theme uh, that I think is important for us to embrace uh, as a society. Some of those high FODMAP fibers include beta-glucan, arabinoxylan, and resistant starch. But even with with that general advice, and there's there's plenty of other foods too, and you can look up uh, online resources that tell you you know which which foods are low FODMAP foods, um, and of course talking with um, a healthcare practitioner. But even with that guidance in our modern busy days, it can be really helpful hard to still get all of that fiber in an extra 15 grams. So there are things which you can take as supplements to get that additional fiber in. What's I think really, really important though, and um, this isn't a message that's emphasized enough is those fiber supplements should be taken in the context of a regular meal, not just a separate thing that you have in the morning because the way fibers work, um, they work in concert with all of the other nutrients in uh, the way that the microbes uh, consume them, the way that they uh, slow the absorption of sugar into the bloodstream in the upper gut. So yeah, there's there's companies that that make these fibers. Supergut is is one of those companies. There's you know other companies as well that have put these fibers into a special uh, formula mm-hmm. uh, that make it really easy to mix into you know yogurt uh, or a soup or a smoothie, uh, or even just, you know, as a aperitif and a little bit of water, um, uh, before a meal. So again, I'm a pragmatist. Um, I know people are not going to always be able to, a lot of people can, and it's great whole foods uh, only, but, uh, for those that, um, find it really challenging, I think, um, a supplement approach can be really helpful. It's like the 70, 30 rule. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it, it's better you can get 70% of the benefit with 30% of the effort, essentially. So let me ask you this, because I've noticed too that different foods affect me in different ways. So like I can eat something one day and it's fine and then I'll eat it another time and forget it. Like one time I I was, um, I found this great way of making fish that I loved. It was, um, I don't even remember which kind of fish, but I would like coat it with garlic and olive oil. Mm-hmm. Loved it. And then one day I ate it and I thought I was going to die. It was, I was, and it was the garlic because I'm like, there's literally nothing that I put on this except garlic. <laughs> and I know it's high FODMAP, but now I've been slowly putting garlic because I've been freaking out. Like, oh my God, I think garlic's out of my life. And I've been slowly adding it back in and I've been fine. So can that happen where like folks that ha- um, need to be on the, the, um, that have SIBO, right? You have SIBO and need to um, be on the low FODMAP diet. Can they eventually get back to being able to eat all foods if their gut microbiome gets balanced? Like, is that really the idea here? Yeah, I think that's the end goal. Um, 
how we achieve that is still an active research question. Okay. I think individual people uh, can try experimenting and bringing things back slowly, bringing things back in the context of other foods, uh, because foods do synergize, nutrients synergize with each other. Right. Uh, for example, if you have um, resistant starch, the low FODMAP, along with um, garlic or inulin, that might allow you to tolerate it better. Okay. So there's that. And then our microbes are dynamic. They change. Uh, they respond to the foods that we eat uh, and to other things. So just as I have the four phonetic Fs, <laughs> uh, there's also what I call the four Ms of a healthy lifestyle. So at molecules, microbes, movement, and minds. Molecules is food. Okay. But for each of these, there's a flip side. It's toxins as well for unhealthy food. Uh, microbes, it's your healthy microbiome lives on in and around us in the environment, but it's also pathogens, viruses, and bad bacteria. And movement, that's exercise, uh, but it's also lack of exercise and too much screen time, too much indoor time. Uh, and then minds, it's mindfulness practices, uh, stress management, good sleep. And then the flip side would be insomnia, stress, our workaholic lives. And there's the four M's, but then there's also one more letter and it's the big C. It's the foundation to all of these columns. Uh, and that's community. Um, that's our relationships. That's our um, friends and our family and um, those connections that really, truly give us meaning uh, in life, make us inclined to want to eat well and exercise, give us friends to do that with. I'd say it's probably the most important. And that's actually borne out in the literature, too, um, how our community or our you know, work friends, our general friends, our family are so important to health and longevity. So those are some of the other ways to focus, uh, to improve gut microbiome, but also uh, overall health. Right. So in the meantime, while we don't have your app yet, if you were to give high level advice on a this or that, mm -hmm. so I'm shopping and let's say I'm on the cereal aisle. I'm a parent, mm -hmm. I'm getting cereal for my kid. How do I pick? Is it only buy Cheerios? Just skip the rest? <laughs> How do we make decisions? about that? Like, what is the, what is the thing that one or two things we should look at when we're thinking of this or that? What it's powered by is ratios and there's the carb to fiber ratio. So you can look at, uh, on the nutrition label, how much carbohydrate there is, how much fiber there is and do a simple calculation, uh, which is just the ratio. And if that ratio is less than 10 to one, and even more ideally less than five to one, that's generally going to be um, a healthier food for you, okay. probably going to be closer to a whole food as well. That's one of the major things that drives the calculator, but there's other ratios uh, that are incorporated as well. Things like sodium to potassium ratio, saturated fat to unsaturated fat uh, ratio, and then um, calorie density, uh, which is calories to, to weight. What's really neat, I think, about this system is in broad brushstrokes helps you identify a whole foods uh, more readily and what it is about those whole foods that makes them healthier because there are studies that 
um, support adding fiber back in. It's not just a proxy or associated with better health, but that truly does decrease your blood sugar levels uh, to a healthier range and decrease insulin and all of this. This has been studied. It was actually the big study that I did at, at Supergut with uh, one of their products in a randomized placebo-controlled trial. So what's what's neat is you can use this type of approach to reestablish balance, even with those foods that are traditionally less healthy mm-hmm. by balancing the carbohydrates with that fiber, which really does mitigate that blood sugar spike or balancing the sodium with some additional potassium, uh, which really does mitigate blood pressure. The other thing I'm really excited about with this um, is it might actually ultimately help inform big food companies what they need to do as well. Because if you have enough consumers that are using a system like this and that are making choices around healthy foods that are changing their buying habits, Mm -hmm. the big food companies are going to see that. Yes, They're going to create premium products. And then ultimately the hope is those premium products, just as Tesla's are kind of transitioning to more and more affordable cars, Mm -hmm. they'll become available for everybody. That's kind of the overall vision. And there are small food companies are already leading the charge there. I think that's another piece of this. Um, If those better for you food companies can show how it's done, that there's viable business models, that there's a market, because at the end of the day, these companies listen to the dollar sign. That's exactly what motivates. It's, it's not for better, or for worse. It's, it's not impact. It's not health always. Right. Um, but right. if, if you can put it into an economic argument that aligns with the health uh, side of things, I think that's where change can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where in a very sort of grassroots type approach, um, an algorithm, a calculator like this combined with those other better for you food companies that are doing the right things, can really make a difference. That's awesome. And two questions. Oh, actually one recommendation for the app and a question. So for the app, menopause. So factors that need to be, because you were talking about how factors need to be taken into account. I will tell you, if someone's in perimenopause, the way we look at things is so different. Like alcohol right now, so many of my friends are having like massive anxiety like can't sleep and all this. And they're saying alcohol is big. Like I, I am in perimenopause and cutting it down. So there's, so I would say when you um, look at the formulaic pieces about what's going on with people and their background that could influence their choices, um, please add what stage of life they're in. Oh, Especially that's fascinating. For, you know what I mean? Like pe- post-pregnancy. Yeah, yeah. And then also if they're on a certain medication for endometriosis, uh-huh. that puts them in menopause. Chemotherapy puts them in menopause. Um, so there's a lot of nuances to that too, but I just think from a women's health perspective, uh, changes in hormones profoundly impact the gut microbiome. Uh, and so depending on what those hormones are, where one is in their cycle, where one is not just in their cycle, but their life cycle, right. In menopause, that specific combination of hormones can lead to a more inflammatory or less inflammatory profile in their microbiome. And so a lot of the symptoms that one might experience in menopause, surely coming from the hormones directly, but they're, I'm intrigued by this possibility that there are these indirect uh, mechanisms as well. And so let's say, and there's some evidence to support this, but let's say you have hormones that 
are leading to more of an inflammatory gut microbiome, which inflames the immune system and you're producing inflammatory cytokines as a result. Maybe a lot of the symptoms that one experiences during menopause are in part related to that as well. And perhaps, just perhaps, there are ways of helping keep that microbiome on track despite those hormonal fluctuations. And diet is the obvious way of doing it. And if you think about, well, what is it in diet that's going to most profoundly impact? It's fiber, it's prebiotic fiber, it's low fat fibers, it's things like beta-glucan resistant starch. And there's even data that's looked at fiber, butyrate we didn't talk so much about, but that's one of the major things that the microbiome is making. And, and butyrate is a, a master a molecule for regulating metabolic health. It has been implicated in preterm birth, um, has been implicated in polycystic ovarian uh, disease. And so ChatGPT got it right with vitamin D and calcium. I think looking into the future with a crystal ball with some of the early studies uh, that we will recognize just how important fiber is for uh, women's health uh, as well. Hormones are going to change. We can't necessarily control them and shouldn't in a lot of ways. And mm -hmm. so is it, if I'm hearing you right, is it keep your gut as healthy as possible because when the hormone changes happen, it's not as bad? It might help um, keep the gut in a stable equilibrium despite the fluctuations that are happening in the body's hormones. Okay. So let me say one more thing about gut health and hormones, because it's not just the sex hormones that we're talking about here. It's not just estrogen, progesterone. The gut makes hormones. The gut makes GLP-1. Now, the savvy listener, maybe most of your listeners um, being medical practitioners, will immediately recognize what GLP-1 is. It's Wagovi. It's, it's these drugs that have been used for some time for diabetes and now uh, more recently have created waves um, and controversy, quite frankly, in the realm of weight loss. They're wonder drugs for morbid obesity as alternatives to um, gastric bypass surgeries. Where it becomes controversial is in kind of the fringes of folks that might be a little overweight mm -hmm. um, or maybe not even overweight, but um, want to lose weight nonetheless. So turns out that these designer drugs that you have to inject, they're produced by the gut naturally. That's where we learned about them in the first place. GLP-1, GIP, GLP-1 is made down in the colon, GIP is made in the upper gut, the duodenum. There's others too, like PYY um, and, and more beyond that. Um, they're made by the gut and what stimulates them uh, are both direct components of the diet, but also how the microbiome consumes things like fiber and turns them into things like butyrate, which is very well worked out, stimulates GLP-1 uh, from um, cells, hormone cells in the lower gut. So all this controversy around, should we be using Wagovi for these fringe cases of um, lowering weight? And, oh, what happens, um, you know, if I'm on it, can I come off it? Or do I have to be on it the rest of my life? If I do come off it, is there going to re rebound on my weight? Maybe I'll be even worse off. And it all comes back to, well, 
maybe this can help you lose a little weight, but ultimately you have to change your diet. At the end of the day, that's all, always what it's going to be. At the end of the day, you have to change your diet when it comes back to whole foods. Yes. Uh, but I think if we, again, understand those whole foods better, things like fiber and that, that whole pathway, fiber to microbiome, to butyrate, to GLP-1, maybe that could be a, a healthier alternative to or complement to some of these uh, weight loss therapies and, and something that you could transition off to ultimately once you've achieved that ideal weight because it will continue to help promote these hormones, um, these gut hormones in a, in a healthy, natural way. Antibiotics. So I'm, this is top of mind because my son has an ear infection and this is the first time I think he's ever had to go on antibiotics. And, you know, you hear, were you born vaginally? Um, were you breastfed? Mm -hmm. Did you have a lot of antibiotics? So there's all these different things that can also impact as we age the gut microbiome. Is this really something that we need to be concerned about? Because we want to make sure we're healing any infections. We also want to mm -hmm. make sure that we're not popping antibiotics like they're vitamins. What, what do we know I think still we probably use antibiotics too frequently and often for viral infections, um, just upper respiratory infections. And you know, for the last 10, 15 years, there's been a real push uh, to have more clear decision-making process in physicians as to whether you use an antibiotic or not when somebody comes into your office with just a standard cold or, or virus. And the same is true for uh, folks who are in the hospital, like when to start, when to stop antibiotics, good stewardship around antibiotics. And that's largely driven by antimicrobial resistance and the fact that antibiotics aren't as useful as they used to be because the bugs are evolving around them and we're running out of options uh, with some of these multi-resistant uh, bugs. What's entered more recently into the conversation is not just about resistance, but it's about depleting our microbiomes, which we're realizing oh, by the way, are probably important for us too. So the bottom line is listen to your physician when it comes to antibiotics. They can be lifesavers. It's really important to complete courses uh, when you've been given a prescription. But what can you do to help promote a healthy microbiome in the presence of antibiotics, after antibiotics? There's been some research that suggests giving probiotics can actually impede uh, the restoration of a healthy gut microbiome after antibiotics. There is a study that was done out of Israel uh, that suggests this. There's just one study, but it does enter a bit of a cautionary tale. Again, probiotics for certain conditions, very specific types of probiotics can be very useful. Uh, so listen to your um, healthcare provider um, around their advice. But generally, uh, when people ask me, I'm going on some antibiotics, what should I do? Uh, I say, eat fermented foods. And the reason is fermented foods, especially the more artisanal versions, have probiotics um, in the complex combinations that we've evolved to expect in our guts. Um, and those probiotics come with the foods that they like to eat, prepackaged, and with the so-called prebiotics, the fibers, mm -hmm. and with uh, what they make out the other ends, the postbiotics. Um, okay things like vinegar, uh, acetic acid, it's, it's all there together. Um, not only that, but this study at Stanford uh, by Justin Sonnenberg shows that it's probably one of the better things for reestablishing um, 
diversity in your gut. Hmm. It's one of the best studies that's shown that fermented foods can do that. So that's my advice. If, if you go on antibiotics, wow. consider eating a range of fermented foods at okay. the same time. I'll, I'll see how much ice cream I have to give my son to have him eat kimchi. <laughs> I know. I know. This has been so fun. What would be your takeaway on keeping your gut healthy that we should all keep in mind one sentence from the doctor himself? Mm, the four M's, the four F's and the one C. If I had to identify one thing, it would probably be fiber. Yeah. Go low and slow, right? Go low and slow, whole foods, whole foods, whole foods, and still hard to get enough in. So consider supplement as well, but that should be done at the same time as, as a meal. Awesome. I really appreciate this interview. Yeah, no, this is, this has been great. I agree. And that wraps up another empowering session here at the FemPower Health Podcast. Now, before you dash off, I've got a quick, exciting invitation for you. Please join our vibrant community by subscribing to our weekly newsletter, because it's really your frontline update on groundbreaking women's health research, the latest health-enhancing products, fun quizzes to boost your health IQ, and unique discoveries that you won't want to miss. All of this delivered straight to your inbox, cutting through the noise of social media algorithms. Love today's insights? Show your support by rating and reviewing our podcast. Your feedback is more than just a pat on our backs here at FemPower Health. It lights the way for others seeking guidance and community in their health journey, amplifying the voices that need to be heard. And for a deeper dive into today's topics, check out the show notes and explore our website at fempower-health.com. Our site is a treasure trove of knowledge, neatly categorized by topics of interest and life stages ensuring you find exactly what you need to empower your health journey. And your voice matters to us deeply. Whether you have a question, a story to share, or feedback on our episodes, reach out directly at info at fempower-health.com, drop us a message on social media, or hit reply on any newsletter. Your insights inspire our conversations. And a quick note, the knowledge we share is here to embolden you in discussions with your healthcare provider. It's not medical advice. Always consult with your doctor for health decisions. And remember, the diverse perspectives of our guests reflect their individual journeys, and it's not an endorsement by FemPower Health. Here's to empowering your health journey one episode at a time, and I'll see you on the next FemPower Health podcast episode.